All right, Gospel of Mark. How do you transition? You just say, Gospel of Mark. I have to move. I say quickly, that's unfair because I already talk too fast. You can save your emails. I know I do. (laughs) We're going to take one last look into the Gospel of Mark this week. Mark chapter 16. Why are we looking at Mark chapter 16 again? Because it's strange. There is no other book in the Bible that ends like the Gospel of Mark does. And I don't want to look away from it. And I don't want to sidestep it. Many of you have remarked to me how much you appreciate that we've taken time to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So many of you have shared with Pastor James and I how much you've gained out of actually taking an entire book of the Bible and, and going through it at the pace that we have. And so we believe that God's been speaking the same thing into our hearts. And with the exception of the next two weeks, where I'm going to just hit two Uh, two messages that are on my heart to share. We're going to use this as a pattern. This summer, we're doing a series called Majoring in the Minors. We've got 12 weeks this summer. There's 12 minor prophets. We're going to take one week on each prophet from Hosea to Malachi. We won't cover the whole book on Sunday. You'd have to pack a picnic lunch and a breakfast. Okay, we won't do that. But we're going to look at each of those books, give you a flyover on who that prophet was and what their life was like. And then we're going to ask the question, where do we see Jesus in these prophets? And then this fall, we're preparing to go through, not the Gospel of Mark, we're going to go through Acts. We're going to go through the Acts of the Apostles at the same pace we went through Mark. And see what, not skipping over everything. And then when we get to Christmas, we're going to look at Luke's Christmas. We're just going to look at the Christmas narrative through the lens of the Gospel of Luke. So we'll just be taking time. Hopefully you're also getting better at reading and studying your Bible as we go through this pace. Let's look at the end of the Gospel of Mark. I I want to just give you the big idea right out of the gate. Because this is what I think Mark was trying to convey to us that somehow gets messed up when you look at these odd endings. The big idea is that the account of the life of Jesus can be summarized in one word. Amazing. Your friend says, well, what, why do you have four Gospels? What is Mark really trying to get after? Here's what Mark's trying to tell you. The life of Jesus is Amazing. There's a strange ending, though, that competes with his thesis. There's this weird ending. Um, We believe the Bible that you hold in your hands contains the absolute truth from God. Amen? You believe that? If you don't, you're in trouble. You're a sham. Okay? I mean that in the most loving way that I can possibly call you a sham. But I believe, we believe as a church, this Bible holds the truth. It is the inarguable, inescapable, undiluted, absolute truth from God. And if there is any wavering in your heart as to the accuracy of your Bible, it will suck all of the confidence right out of your heart. We don't think the Bible is true because we believe it. We believe it because it's true. But if there's even a part of you that wavers or doubts, that thinks even for a second, maybe this sentence or this verse is suspect. Maybe it's not accurate. If there's any hesitation in your heart at all, it will suck all the confidence right out of your life. Why? Because if even one chapter, one book, one sentence of this book, if even one word is proven to be inaccurate, then the whole thing is suspect. And everything we believe to be true, everything we believe to be accurate, those are two different questions. Is it true? Is it accurate? Everything falls apart. 
you have no logical, rightful reason to be confident of anything. Now, I don't want that to trouble you. I want to use this last 12 minutes that I have. I want to leverage this moment to try and boost your confidence that what you have is indeed an accurate, reliable English translation of the original manuscripts that were derived from the original authors of the Bible, that you can trust its accuracy. So there's three questions we're going to tackle today as best I can. Number one, why are there two additional endings at the end of Mark? We have an ending, and then a shorter ending, and then a longer ending. Why do we have this? No other book is like this. Why do we have multiple endings? Second question, do either of these two endings belong in the original authored by Mark? And thirdly, why did Mark choose to end his gospel the way he ends it? So why are these two endings here? Do they belong in the original? And if they don't, where did Mark originally end it? And what do we miss if we don't consider that the original ending? So uh, there's two terms, real quick. I'm going to condense down. I've taught on this at length before. There's two terms you need to be familiar with in this conversation. First term is the term autograph. Second term is the term manuscript. An autograph, when we talk about the Bible, an autograph means this. It is the original Scripture and the original handwriting of the original author or their amanuensis. It's the original from the original in the original. Second term I want you to be familiar with is the term manuscript. A manuscript is a handwritten, not typographic, a handwritten copy. Handwritten copy of the original. You also need to know this. Every single piece of literature pre-1500s was hand-copied. We did not have printing presses. So anything at all, the Bible, Homer, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, anything, Caesar, anybody who wrote anything that we have multiple copies of, it was only copied by the process of making a manuscript. Okay? So here's a question. Where are all the originals of the 66 books of the Bible? Where are all the autographs? They are all gone. We have zero. They have all been destroyed. Is that as bad as it sounds? No. Why? Because absolutely nothing written in that era was written with or on materials that could have survived the test of time. Do you see how fragile our own American history documents are from just a couple hundred years ago? All this old ancient stuff was written on papyrus with charcoal that was not meant to last 2,000 years. And so... Fortunately for us, the early Christians recognized the predicament that this was and began very early on making authenticated, authentic, handwritten copies of the originals. Okay? We have no originals from anybody from this era. No originals. They're all gone. They're all destroyed. So then the question of accuracy comes up. Well, how do I know? There's a reason I'm going after all this. Okay? How do I know then that what I have in my hand is accurate? How do I know? There's two tests we talk about. The timeline test and the number of manuscripts test. Timeline. 
That basically means the shorter the distance between the original and the first authentic copy, the less likely there is for inaccuracy. The ink is probably still very readable. It's not been subject to decay. The longer the distance between the original and the first authentic copy, the less likely it could be accurate. It could have fallen apart. There could be paper loss. There could be fading. There could be blurring. For example, Aristotle's writings date to the originals being in about 343 A.D. First authentic copy, uh, first authenticated manuscript of Aristotle, a distance of 1,400 years. Okay? Now, there's not a lot of debate on how accurate our writings of Aristotle are. We tend to accept that gap as we can, we can stomach that. By comparison, I'll just give you one. I'm loaded with information. I can only give you one. Let's use the Gospel of Mark. First authenticated manuscript that we found of gospel mark actually we found more recently in the Qumran community i think it was k5 i can't remember exactly which one but it dates to 68 a.d jesus walked on the earth 30 to 34 a.d so the first authenticated manuscript of the gospel of mark that we have less than 30 years from the original there's not even a close second place from any other piece of ancient literature in the timeline test in other words it was it was copied by hand 30 years or less after the original was constructed. So the, the relative accuracy, the likelihood of accuracy is, is huge by a factor of almost 50 over Aristotle. Then the second, the second test you have is the number of manuscripts. The more manuscripts we have and the less variance between them, the more accurate that they are. I'll just give you the, you know, Plato. Okay, I don't know how many of you read Plato in your spare time. Um, we have seven of his manuscripts. Seven total. Aristotle, we've got more. We've got 49 manuscripts, 49 authenticated copies of Aristotle's writing. In second place, we have Homer's Iliad with 643. Okay. First place, just to give you an idea, New Testament manuscripts as of a year ago, uh, 24,633. That's how many we have. And if you, I, won't, I, I don't have time. <laughs> I'm just trying to submit to you that there is a better case for this being accurate than any other ancient literature of that time, and it's not even close. Now, why do you go through all that? Because Mark chapter 16 immediately questions the accuracy of the text. Within Mark chapter 16, at the very end, it calls the accuracy of, of the gospel of Mark into question because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we have what's called a textual variant. It's an add-on. You've got this odd section, and based on what translation you have, you're going to see different things. I'm using the New Living Translation this morning. There is something added on to the gospel of Mark that your Bible tells you is not in the original. It's not in the, old, it's not in the oldest manuscripts. And so we have to ask the question, why did it get there? Is it supposed to be in the original? Did Mark leave it out and they found it later on and add it back in? We've got to look at this. And I don't want it to trouble you. I actually think if we look at this briefly together this morning, it'll have you walking away even more moved and amazed at the life, at the life of Jesus. So why are these two additional endings here? I'll give you the short answer because I don't have time to give you a long answer. Why do they have two endings? Because by the second century... The early Christian leaders who were passing these manuscripts around became really dissatisfied with the original ending of the Gospel of Mark. 
We'll go back to it in a second in verse 8. It, the original ending of the Gospel of Mark, it should say in your Bible, it does in mine, most early manuscripts end the Gospel of Mark at the end of chapter 8. What we have here is an empty tomb, an angelic messenger, and women fleeing the tomb, frightened, amazed, and bewildered. Period. Last word he writes is the Greek word phobia. He ends the whole gospel in the word frightened. And the early church are reading the other gospels at this time and saying that's not how Matthew and Luke and John end. They include post-resurrection history. There's some summaries there. It's a nice you know, you kind of just land the plane real smooth, but Mark, it's this jarring. And they started to say, surely Mark did not intend to end his gospel this way. And you want to be like, really? You know his intentions? And they started to say, this deserves a more fitting ending. And so, because of that, that chief complaint that they had, other endings start to show up in some of these next generation of manuscripts, like the one I'll read to you right now. Um, there, there, there's some other ones that, that, that end up here. Uh, uh, here's verse 8. The women, oops. the women fled from the tomb trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. That's the original ending. Okay, Original ending's right there. We get the Greek words there. You get the word for uh, trembling, which is the word trauma. So they're in some type of trauma. The word for bewildered is actually our word for ecstasy, and the word for frightened is phobia. So they're in this ecstasy of traumatic phobia (laughs) and they are rendered completely speechless and apparently so was mark and that's how he ends the gospel there is this culminating feat that jesus does that somehow trumps everything else he did throughout the gospel that historically rendered people amazed speechless terrified frightened but the story continued and then he does this He's proved his point. What was his point? Chapter 1, verse 1. I'm writing the gospel to prove to you that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He writes the gospel. He proves it. And he stops. Case closed. Point proven. Story over. Women speechless. So is the writer. That's the ending. Is it incomplete? I don't think so. Is it inadequate? I don't think so. Early church thought so. And so you start to see endings like this one. Shorter ending. Then they briefly reported all this to Peter and his companions. Such a jarring transition. Afterward, Jesus himself sent them out from the east to west with the sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. Amen. Now, isn't that just a nice little bow to tie on the end of the story? Oh, it's happily ever after he chatted with Peter. He sent them out. Even includes amen, which you can't dismiss people from church unless you say amen. And here it all is. But they added this. The early church leaders added it later on. And then for some other people, that wasn't enough. So you have in the New Living Translation a second, longer ending. Let me read to you. Let's continue here. After Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. Which is interesting. Um, This is not new information, is it? It is in Mark, but if you read the New Testament, is that new? Nope. Is it incorrect? No, it's true. But we know exactly where that came from. That came from Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. They didn't have right-click, copy, and paste back then, but they did have the other Gospels. So they started sourcing 
some concluding remarks from the other Gospels and making them into a kind of patchwork quilt to end this one. So um, we have Mary Magdalene. From, it's kind of awkward because Mark ends it in chapter 8. And we already know in Mark's Gospel who Mary is. He's mentioned her three times. They added this on and it's very jarring. It shifts the attention just to Mary Magdalene and it shifts to an introduction of Mary Magdalene. She's the woman from whom he had cast seven demons. Well, that's weird. He already told us three times who she was. Why is he adding it here at the end? It's just internal evidence to show us that this was added later by not Mark. There's also 18 vocabulary words used in this longer ending that Mark never uses. Keep going. She went to the disciples who were grieving and weeping, and she told them what had happened. But when she told them that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they didn't believe her. Now, again, is this true? Yes, this actually happened. How do we know? We have what they have. We have John chapter 20, verse 18, where this came from. Keep going. Afterward, he appeared in a different form to two of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. They rushed back to tell the others, but no one believed them. Keep going. Still later, he appeared to the 11 disciples as they were eating together. He rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him after he had been raised from the dead. Is this new information to us? No. Is it true? Yes. How do we know? It's basically a condensed account of what we read in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32 and 36 through 38. Again, it's nice. It's true. It's not in any way new to us, but it's just more information sourced from other gospels added on to the end of Mark. Let's go one more time. And, when he, and then he told them, now hopefully you've heard this, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Have you heard that before? Matthew 28, 19, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. John 20, 23, anyone who, uh, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. Then we have this one thing we don't find anywhere else, which is kind of strange. I don't have time for it this morning, but I'll read it so we don't skip it. Um, These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name, which Jesus said. They will speak in new languages, which we see fulfilled in Acts. Then you have these other ones that have given church an interesting practice history over the years. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be healed I I had more to say about that. Maybe I'll have time to catch it some other week. I just don't have time this morning. When the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And the disciples went everywhere and preached. And the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. And that is a a composite of Matthew 10, Mark 6, and Luke 10. So here's what we have. We have a shorter ending. That was not written by Mark. The internal and the external evidence tells us that wasn't Mark's. That was unearthed later. It was added. We have a longer ending that Mark didn't write. Internal and external evidence shows us that wasn't Mark. That was a composite of writings of Matthew, Luke, and John. Is any of the information untrue? Of course not. It's true. It's reinforced everywhere with the exception of that little handling of the snakes and drinking of the poison part that's not reinforced anywhere else in the Gospels. That seems to have been added through uh, some of these leaders who were adding into these manuscripts later on who are taking real-time experiences that we're having and adding it in after, after the original Gospel was completed. So we're not arguing about whether it's true. We're arguing about whether it's accurate. We think it's It's accurate, but now the question is, is it really necessary? To them, it was. But to us, I would say no. Mark's original ending, quite frankly, makes a point that we miss. 
if we keep reading verses 9 through 20. There's nothing new to gather out of 9 through 20. It's kind of neutral. It doesn't really add anything to the story, but what it does take away is the impact of the ending the way Mark intended it to show us how amazing Jesus was. I just have to cut to the conclusion here. What do we miss by adding this ending on? How would it feel if we just kept Mark's original ending at verse 8? I'm going to give you a quick review because I think you'll appreciate this this way. Um, Mark starts the gospel abruptly. He starts at Jesus' baptism. He ends it abruptly at the empty tomb. Okay? He has nothing before his public ministry in his gospel. He has nothing after Jesus' resurrection. He's setting out to prove a point that Jesus is the Son of God. He makes his point, and then he's done. Quick review. I was going to read all these verses for you. I, I can't. Quick review. Chapter 1, verse 22, Jesus teaches in the synagogue at Capernaum. And in verse 22, it says, And the people were amazed at his teaching and the authority with which he spoke. We studied some more in chapter 1, and we got down to verse 27, where he actually casts an evil spirit out of somebody. And in verse 27, Mark writes, They were all amazed, and so they debated among themselves, Who is this? What kind of a man is this that... That, that he can wield this kind of power. We studied chapter 2, verse 12, where he heal, healed the paralytic. Some of you remember that. And in, in chapter 2, verse 12, it says, He healed the paralytic, and they were all amazed, and they praised God, and they said, We've never seen anything like this in all Jerusalem. Chapter 4, verse 41, we find his disciples the first time on a sinking boat. You remember that? They wake him up. He gets up. He says, peace be still. Everything quiets down. And in verse 41, it says, he calmed the storm. And after the storm was calmed, they, the disciples, became absolutely terrified and said, who is this? Chapter 5, verse 15. They come to Jesus. Who is they? The people in Gennesaret. When Jesus delivers the demon-possessed man. You remember the naked guy cutting himself, howling and wandering around in the tombs? Jesus delivers the evil spirit and the people from the town come in and they see the demon-possessed man fully clothed, sitting peacefully at Jesus' feet in his right mind. In verse 15, it says, they came to Jesus and observed the demon-possessed man and they became totally amazed and terrified. Chapter 5, verse 33, he healed the woman with the issue of, the blo- issue of blood and the woman approached Jesus fearing fearing him and trembling, and she came and confessed to him what she had done. Chapter 5, verse 42, when he raised a 12-year-old from the dead, after he did it, it says, those who were there were completely overwhelmed and totally amazed. Are you seeing a pattern with Mark here? Every single person that Jesus comes in contact with leaves amazed or bewildered or terrified or pretty much some combination of all of the above. Chapter 6, Chapter 6, the second time he comes to them on the boat, he stops the wind and the waves, and they were totally amazed, that, and he climbed in the boat, and the wind stopped. Chapter 9, verse 6, at the transfiguration, after they saw this all happen, they were totally amazed and terrified by what they saw. Chapter 9, verse 15, the entire crowd was overwhelmed with awe and amazement when they saw Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration 
entering into an argument between the disciples and the teachers of the law. Chapter 9, verse 32. As they continued to walk on, Jesus prophesied about his death, and the disciples heard what he said, and they were amazed and terrified to ask him what he really meant. Chapter 10, verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words to the rich young ruler. Chapter 10, verse 32. The disciples were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. Chapter 11, verse 18. They were afraid of him. They were afraid of him for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Who was afraid? The teachers and the leading priests were afraid of Jesus after he cleansed the temple. It says they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was amazed and astonished by his teaching. We'll skip even further to the end. Pilate, when Jesus remained silent, it says Pilate was amazed. And then chapter 16, verse 5, when women entered the tomb, and they saw it empty, and the messenger, it says, they were amazed. Seventeen times in the Gospel of Mark, at nearly every pivotal story, at every time he taught, every time he had a conversation, every time he had a teaching moment with his disciples, every time he demonstrated his power, every time he demonstrated his wisdom, every time he demonstrated his authority, every time he stood before friend or foe, the people's reaction was pretty much the same. They were amazed. So why wouldn't it make sense for the ultimate thing that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark leave the women and the writer and his followers with anything less than total and complete amazement? That's the way Mark wanted the Gospel to end. The women left the tomb, the empty tomb, and they were totally amazed and frightened and confused and in a state of ecstasy because of what they experienced. Here's my question. Does Jesus still amaze you? Does he amaze you? Doesn't everything that Jesus teaches amaze you? Doesn't every act of his power amaze you? Doesn't every intimate personal experience you have with Jesus, doesn't it leave you amazed and sometimes frightened and sometimes bewildered, but in some state of phobia, that Greek word meant to have an experience beyond all rational human comprehension. In other words, you walk away from those experiences with Jesus saying, I have interacted with something that is not human. The whole point Mark is trying to make is that Jesus Christ was, is, and always will be Absolutely amazing. And I want you to know the amazing Jesus Christ this morning. Worship team, will you come and close us out? Let's pray together this morning. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to know him. I want you to know him. As a matter of fact, worship team, I'm going to call an audible. I went over time. You can come on up and get ready, but I'm going to have James move right into the closing right after this. So come on up and get ready. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. It's as simple as admit, believe, choose. You admit that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short of the mark. B, you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that lived a sinless life, that died on the cross as our substitute, as our payment for our sin. He died in my place. And that he rose from the dead. And then C, we choose him to be the Lord over our life. If you're ready to surrender control of your life to Jesus this morning, I want to lead you in a prayer that simply says this. Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe in you. I believe in your perfect life, your innocent death in my place, and your resurrection from the dead. I receive forgiveness for my sins today. And there are many sins, but I receive that from you this morning. 
I invite you to take residence inside of me. And I choose to surrender leadership and lordship of my life to you. Thank you for saving me. In your name I pray. Amen.